On September 13th and September 14th, Blockworks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in New York yet again. I will be hosting a macro conversation with Alfonso Pecatiello, Urian Timmer, Daniel DiMartino Booth, and Mike Green. That is just one of many conversations at DOS. Think the deals end there? No, 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 no. Blockworks Research is the premier institutional crypto research product. And if you use the code guidance, all lowercase, you can get 50% off on Blockworks Research. Our head of research just wrote a second quarter macro review of all that happened over the past few months. It is free. So if you click the link in the description, you can get that for free and then use the code guidance, all lower caps, to get 50% off Blockworks Research. Thank you. Or should I say, you're welcome. I am joined by two people who have a lot of insight that I think is going to be really valuable for everyone listening. Chris Whalen, you really understand the commercial banking sector. And Joseph Wang, you really understand the central banking sector, the Federal Reserve. And I think it is the at the union of these two things uh, that everything important is going on. Welcome, uh, both you gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. And good to meet you, Chris. Yeah, likewise, Joseph. Chris, I want to start, you were just saying to us a few days ago that the liquidity that the Fed gave the central, excuse me, the commercial banks, it, it got them bigger, but it bloats you. It doesn't increase their earnings. So what is the impact of, what was the impact of quantitative easing on commercial banks? On the surface, it sounds good. Oh, it's it's giving them money, right? Um, and But it's more complicated than that, right? And then also, what is the impact now that the liquidity is going the other way, now that the Federal Reserve is withdrawing liquidity via quantitative tightening. Well, as you said, Jack, uh, it made them bigger. Uh, they got a lot of short-term reserves at the Fed, which is cash, but they couldn't do much with it. You're not going to go make 30-year mortgages or 10-year commercial loans with it. So it made them bigger. It pushed down their returns on assets and on equity. And it essentially, I think, retarded lending because it, it, it had the effect of pushing interest rates down dramatically. So if you look at JP Morgan, City, the big guys, right? They're making barely 3% gross before administrative costs and funding and everything else on a commercial loan. Why do they want to do that? So I think it disincentivized credit creation in a strange way, and it pushed it off into the world of fintechs, who have now collapsed. So. You know, the economy, on the one hand, had two roaring years, 20 and 21, but now we're kind of back in a recessionary, deflationary mode. And look at the mortgage sector. People are going out of business left and right. You know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of feast and famine. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And now we're in the worst. Uh, and just today, Ginny May just put out new capital requirements for a bunch of issuers that are going out of business. So I thought that was nice. Kind of a little cherry on the top of the cake. <laughs> you know, and this is all central bankers trying to help us. Maybe Joseph can help us understand why this is helpful. <laughs> Joseph, we need your help. <laughs> no one knows what the Fed is doing. So, you know, look at where inflation is. But, you know, I would just add to Chris's note, you know, like Jack, like you said, the Fed did all this quantitative easing and it bloated the bank's balance sheet. And they didn't like that, as Chris noted. So one of the things they've been doing, the commercial banks have been doing the past couple of years is actually asking some of their depositors to take money out and deposit it into the money market funds, right? So one way a commercial bank can do to shrink their balance sheet is to ask people to take money out of their bank, out of their bank account and put it in a money market fund. And when that happens, then the money market funds get a whole bunch of money that they don't have anywhere to put and end up being put into the reverse repo facility. And that's why the reverse... Well, no, be, be, because the first step, Joseph, drove rates down more. And so these money market funds that were on the verge of going out of business come to the Fed and say, would you lend us some securities that actually have a return? Yeah. To and so step two is what you just described, which is that they have nowhere left to go. So they go back to the Fed. Yeah. And, and the Fed is now lending them the securities that they bought from JP Morgan. And to your point, oh, is helpful? But to your point, no, the reverse repo facility was at 1.0%, but they raised it five basis points, you know, and that helps the money market funds a lot. Otherwise, they'd be making no money at all. What do you think happens next, though, Joseph? You think that they push the rate on reserves up and they leave 
the reverse rate where it is? Um, I, I did see that you mentioned that, uh, that Bill Nelson, who was a very senior, formerly senior person at the Fed and also a great economist, mentioned that, that one way that you could help drain the reverse repo facility would be to raise the interest on reserves higher uh, than, so the spread between the interest rate on IOR to RRP, just widen that spread um, as a way to incentivize banks to hold more reserves. That way they won't push so much of the money into the money funds, which end up in the reverse repo facility, right? Yeah, So it's kind of a circle. <laughs> I think that would have worked um, like before money market fund return reform, but it's a bit harder now. And the reason being that uh, what the way that that mechanism used to work is that you had some banks, mostly foreign banks, who would go out and borrow reserves at a low price and then deposit it at the Fed to earn IOR. This trade, called basically IOR arbitrage, uh, was uh, responsible for a lot of the demand in the federal funds market and overnight unsecured borrowing in general. And before money market fund reform, uh, it was like hundreds of billions of dollars. But after money market fund reform, the funds that were doing this lending, these were the prime money market funds, they shrank a lot. They lost a trillion dollars in assets. So their ability to lend to commercial banks to do that ARB uh, is a lot smaller. And so if you can't have a lot of money being able to do that ARB, then there's, I think, less of a drain of the RRP into the banking sector. Well, in theory, the Fed's going to be able to reduce the asset side of the balance sheet and then yeah. see the liability side go down. That's what our friend Bill has uh, written about and his colleagues who do great work. Uh, but at the same time, Chairman Powell, Joseph, has been signaling that he's not really comfortable. Uh, in fact, he delayed six months uh, the runoff date for the balance sheet because I think they're still trying to figure it out. How do you read this? I'm taking Jack's thunder away, by the way. <laughs> well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, my sense is from, from reading commentary is that Chair Powell was on the FOMC during the time of the taper tantrum, and so that's just made him more cautious. And remember, the last time we did QT, it was perceived that that contributed to the repo market exploding. So that, that makes him a lot more hesitant. He's also hesitant yeah. because the treasury market blew up in March of 2020. So he wants to be extra careful. So he's kind of erring on the side of caution and kind of dragging this out. Uh, but I think, yeah. though, that we're going to proceed as he telegraphed. So we're going to get $60 billion in treasuries and 35 uh, billion in mortgages. And as you know, Chris, and we'll talk about it later, they, they probably won't get there uh, because of the prepayments and so forth. But I think they're going to proceed at, on their current plan and let it run on autopilot starting in September. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm hoping they just raise rates, uh, the target rates a couple of times between now and the end of the year and then just leave it there and see what happens with the balance sheet, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't do both at once. If we do both at once, I think we get in trouble again. That looks like the plan so far, just basically higher for longer, as they would say, raise it up to what they think yeah. of as, let's say, three and a half, four percent, moderately um, right. you know, restrictive, just leave it there for a while. And you've had a lot of commentary saying that the error of the 1970s was that we cut rates too soon and then we had to raise them again. So we don't want to make that mm. mistake again. We're just going to raise mm. rates what we think is a restrictive stance and just keep them there for, for a while. Uh, I guess the question is, is 3.5% actually restrictive when inflation is like 8%? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think the, it's not like when I was a kid years ago and all the demand pull inflation from young families was the big policy concern. We have a very different population now. And we have global demand for dollars that we don't even talk about uh, at Fed minutes. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, that definitely. Yeah, Jack? Uh, yeah, so I, I just want to ex explain a point you folks were mentioning earlier, which is the reverse repo rate is the rate that the Federal Reserve uh, pays folks uh, uh, due to lend securities essentially. And that rate is that the reverse repo market is much bigger than the federal funds market. And Joseph, I thank you for pointing this out to me. Back in the oh, glory yeah. days of the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s of banking that, you know, Chris, you saw, the federal funds market was a huge market. And, you know, when I first learned that the Federal Reserve controlled the price of money, I thought that it was the Federal Reserve just setting the rate that they pay banks, essentially which is what the reverse repo rate is. 
But I actually learned, no, it's the rates that banks charge each other to borrow and lend reserves in overnight overnight market. But uh, now that there's so many reserves in the banking system as a result after the great financial crisis and quantitative easing, it really is the reverse repo uh, rate that is the bulk of the action. Joseph, perhaps you can give us some, some ballpark numbers on just how much larger the reverse repo market is than the federal funds market and uh, why that's significant. Wow. The federal funds market, well, it's been ticking up a little bit. I think it's around 80, 90 billion now. The repo market, oh my gosh, it's like three, four trillion dollars. So mm-hmm. the world has really changed. The federal funds market used to be an important market pre-GFC. Because pre-GFC, um, there wasn't a lot of reserves in the system, and banks needed them to make payments, and so they would go and borrow from other banks to get them. Um, just But post-GFC, like you mentioned, Jack, because of QE, there's just so much more liquidity in the banking system. There's really no need to borrow. Um, the, the funny thing is that the only people who are actually lending in the Fed funds market these days are, are the home loan banks, and they're they're not commercial banks, they're basically the special kind of GSE um, that uh, actually doesn't receive interest on reserves. So they get zero in their Fed account and they're desperately trying to earn a little bit of money. So they're lending. Yes, they are. And so they're lending a little bit of money to basically foreign banks, hoping that the foreign banks would pay them a little bit. And then the foreign banks take the money and deposit at the Fed and earn that IOR spread. So for example, they could borrow from the uh, home loan banks at I'll say 50 basis points, turn around and deposit it at the Fed for 60 basis points and earn a 10 basis point spread. That's usually how it works. Chris, I want to ask you about securities. You mentioned that the quantitative easing over the past two years, it failed to stimulate lending from commercial banks. But I really think that's the old fashioned lending. Oh, I'm going to lend against your your house. I'm going to lend a, a consumer loan, a commercial and industrial loan. So that the party wasn't really going on there, but the party was in full flush in the securities market, investment grade bonds, CLOs, high yield bonds, the stock market, IPOs, SPACs. Can you just speak, Chris, to the effect of quantitative easing on the securities market? You know, I actually was speaking to a a former guest of mine who I have a lot of respect for, and he was saying that the effect, you know, we look at these commercial industrial loan statistics, and it makes it look like, oh, quantitative easing doesn't really have an effect. But if you actually take mm-hmm. into account securities, I mean, the parties, the, the cafes are open all night on the high yield bond floor in, in 2020, right? Well, they were, but it's a terrible misallocation of resources. I mean, if you look at the losses that have been taken on those securities that were issued during 2020-21, uh, look at the losses, uh, both equity and debt, in fintech and mortgage and crypto and MAME stocks, all of this, you're right, was as a result of the Fed. You know, we basically shifted the credit curve a full notch so that a company that was a single B or a double B, you know, could come out and raise debt at an, intru- an investment grade spread. Well, now they're not trading in investment grade spreads anymore. <laughs> and that's really the downside of QE. It's kind of like heroin. For a while, it feels great, but then you want more. And as you expand the balance sheet, really, who is the big beneficiary other than those companies that were issuing debt, right? It's the Treasury. Uh, we monetized the cost of the Treasury issuance on every bond that the Fed bought. And then they took the income from $2.7 trillion worth of mortgage securities and they gave that to the Treasury. So it's hard to find somebody out there that benefited more than the U.S. Treasury from quantitative easing. And yet we don't have a member of Congress who can ask Chairman Powell about this. Uh, They are a real disappointment, I must say, the current crop of congressmen. Think about who we had in Congress 100 years ago who actually understood finance and could barbecue Chairman Powell. Uh, but there's nobody to ask him questions now, so they do what they want. Like, as Joseph was saying, they nationalized the Fed funds market. Great. What people have to realize is that the U.S. bond market is a reason we're different. And if we mess with this enough, and then we wonder why we don't bounce after a, a crisis like COVID or a recession, that's why. Yes. So if we let these folks at the Fed continue their social engineering and their experimentation on all of us, you know, we're like a lab experiment. We're a little Petri dish. And Chair Powell is putting chemicals on top of us every day to see what happens. But they don't know. 
it's clear from his comments in the minutes and the press conferences that he doesn't know how much of a balance sheet reduction equals how much Fed funds. He has no idea. But we're going to find out. Yes, we will. <laughs> you know, just, just for some context for, for our readers, you know, once upon a time in Congress, people would talk about having a balanced budget, right? People would talk about, you got to get rid of the national debt. And, you know, there's a, there's a time, uh, let's say, like maybe eight, nine years ago, we, we did basically have a balanced budget. But if, if you look at what the, uh, the pro- projections are going forward, we're going to have a trillion dollar deficit basically forever. And at least, right? Yep. So that that's that yep. can't be sustainable. You can't issue a trillion dollars of treasury securities the, forever. That's the context for quantitative easing, Joseph. Yeah. You know, if the Treasury was running a balanced budget, Chairman Powell wouldn't have to worry about the market. But it's because the Treasury has such large deficits, Fed monetary policy has to lean in that direction. So forget about inflation, right? You know, I'll tell you guys a funny story. I was the first journalist to write about the secret Fed minutes. If you go back and look at the Fed research, I was the first one. My dad's wire service, Wyas Washington, uh, did the work. And it was because I knew Henry B. Gonzalez. Henry B. from Texas used to ask a lot of questions. And he would read everything. You'd have hearings that went on for eight, nine hours. He'd order dinner. You know, you weren't, you weren't allowed to leave. Today, the people in the House Financial Services Committee are a joke. Maxine Waters can't even find the light switch without help. And, and yet you expect them to supervise our central bank? Nah, they don't want to know is the reality. The last thing they want to do is ask Chairman Powell a question, you know, that he can't answer. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot, too. So, so I, I, just from my time on, at the Fed, so I noticed that the people who make all the decisions at the Fed, they basically just get there by getting in early and writing it through seniority and they can never be fired and they eventually over time become more senior and accumulate all this power. So this is not just at the Fed, but it's at any agency, right? Like the secretary, the State Department, military, or any department, you have this entire small army of bureaucrats who wield enormous amounts of power because the government has control over so many things. And these people, you never see them. They have, you don't stand for elections. They never get fired, but they hold so much power. It's a New Deal socialist institution. That's what it is. You know, the whole concept of a central bank is a socialist concept. So, you know, I guess we shouldn't expect any more from them. But the, the thing that bothers me is the lack of sensitivity that they have for what they're doing to the markets. They don't seem to mind. And then they model things like reserve requirements that you were talking about earlier based on a percentage of GDP. Mm. This makes no sense at all, but that's what they do because it's the only thing they can talk about at the press conference that people would understand. There's such a lack of understanding of finance and economics in Washington that you can't get more complicated than that. I mean, Chair Powell's used the word duration a couple of times. It just went right over everybody's head. <laughs> you know, mm. the people at the press conference are, are basically groupies for economists, the people you were just describing, Joseph the tenured economist. And yet, you know, my, my concept would be, let's go back to 1929, get rid of the Federal Reserve Board entirely. We got to turn three of the Western branches into full reserve banks, and then we subject them all to Senate approval. Get it out in the public. And we close down that building in Washington, by the way, we can make it a homeless shelter. <laughs> it's a beautiful area. They can play on the lawn. Oh, you know? It's a beautiful building. It's like white marble. Sure. It's, it's it's beautiful, yeah. Um, it's lovely. And it's in a quiet part of Washington. It's actually in Foggy Bottom. So, you know, if they if they if they don't kind of check the power of the Fed, think about the things that they're thinking of doing right now, right? They want to green the financial system. Uh, what is that going to mean, yeah. right? Let's say you're a bank. You want to make a loan to someone who's in oil and gas or extractive industries. Maybe the Fed causes you problems, right? That that might be. How it works? Well, they want to take over payments, Joseph. Yes, they want to have Fed a CBDC. Now. Oh, Fed now, that's going to happen. CBDC, not necessarily. Depends on who's in power. But, you know, that means that they're going to be able to track and see what everyone does. And maybe if they don't like you, maybe you don't get an account. Well, you know, we used to be able to go into the lobby at the Fed in New York and transact business. But after the 30s, that went out of vogue. 
they confiscated all the gold and then people were afraid of the Fed. You know, people forget that the Fed helped track down individuals that owned physical gold in the early 30s, even before the law was passed. No, I did That's not how know much that. of New Dealers that they were. They were willing to help the Roosevelt administration track down Americans and force them to give up their gold just so they could inflate the currency. So you always got to remember there's an authoritarian aspect to the Fed that we can never get rid of. It's just part of the nature of the institution. Uh, guys, I want to ask about there are two markets that are under considerable distress. And it's very concerning because those markets are some of the biggest markets in the world. I'm talking about the U.S. Treasury market and the U.S. mortgage-backed security market. And those two asset classes represent almost the entire uh, Federal Reserve balance sheet. You know, two-thirds roughly is treasuries, one-third roughly is mortgage-backed securities. Uh, Joseph, you've been writing a lot about treasuries, and, and Chris, you've been focusing a lot on, on mortgages. Joseph, let's start with treasuries. People think of treasuries as a risk-off asset, but treasuries have been falling a tremendous amount over the course of this year. Can you just walk viewers through why is that the case? Is it because inflation is rising and the private market participants are dumping bonds? Is it because the Federal Reserve, it's, it's sort of a, 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 a self-inflicted wound by the Federal Reserve um, because they want to hike interest rates to, to curb inflation? Uh, what's going on there? And then I want to get into your, your latest piece on a potential treasury buyback. Something really weird is happening in the markets the past year. So stocks have sold off and bonds have sold off. And a big reason for this is because the Fed's reaction function has changed. So as uh, we had this discussion with Alf a few videos ago, and he explained it very well, is that when the Fed, when inflation is rising, so the Fed is going to be hiking rates, uh, that means bond prices have to sell off as bonds price into the price those rate hikes in. So that's part of it. That's part of the reason why when stocks fall now, Bonds also fall because they know that the Fed is going to hike rates because there's inflation. But looking looking forward, though, I think uh, what I'm worried about is just that the amount of supply of bonds coming online is just tremendous. Um, ultimately, when I think about what determines longer-term interest rates, it's going to be supply and demand. Someone has to be able be willing to buy Treasury at a certain price. Now, as I mentioned, as we were just talking about a few moments ago, the amount of supply coming online this year is about 1.5 trillion, taking into account QT. Next year, 1.5 trillion. And from then on, it's probably going to be around a trillion forever. And that's a whole lot of supply. Just for, for context, just a couple of years ago, just pre-COVID, we were issuing about 500 billion a year. Now, who's going to buy all that? Now, before COVID, it was the hedge funds. Post-COVID, it was the Fed and it was the commercial banks. Now I don't know who's going to buy that. So you have a lot of supply coming online, and I don't know who the marginal buyer is. Add, the, add into that, you have a lot of a treasury market that has very poor liquidity. You see the 10-year just you know, jumping around almost like a MEM stock. So you know, I, I, it almost looks like the Fed is trying to stress test the treasury market. So I, I think there's a potential for some accident there. And one of the ways that the official sector is trying to get ahead of this is that they're floating the idea of treasury buybacks. So the U.S. Treasury and their refunding minutes kind of floated the idea of maybe we could do buybacks. And what that means is that they'll issue more treasury bills, very short data treasuries that the money market funds can buy, and use the proceeds to buy coupon treasuries longer duration. So it's kind of like a twist, basically. And that will definitely help uh, strengthen the treasury market. But there's a limit to how much they can do, but it'll help. I've got tons of questions. So I think you're referencing Operation Twist, which, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the Federal Reserve's actions, not the Treasury. Yep. And then also in the Well, Treasury they're undoing Twist. They're, doing they're, they're making up for their earlier mistake. Uh. It was a disaster. This is Janet Yellen, by the way. Don't forget. She's the author of Twist. She's the author of Twist. Okay. And then in 2000, I think, when the U.S. had a very brief period of fiscal surplus, they did this, but they funded their buyback with the surplus of the U.S. government. This time, they would be funding their buyback uh, with with additional debt. And yeah, then, so it sounds so quaint, right? And then my second point is, Joseph, isn't this sort of you know the Fed is doing everything it can to tighten financial conditions, uh, letting its balance sheet uh, roll off, uh, increasing the duration of the market, hiking interest rates up uh, to, to tighten financial conditions. And then it's then that causes liquidity problems, that causes problems. And then there's all these sort of solutions that everyone else proposes where it's like, oh, well, the Treasury will help support uh, and make and make an easy 
QT happen. But isn't the whole point that it's difficult? You know, isn't this kind of like the Fed is turning on the humidifier and then the Treasury is turning on the dehumidifier at the same time? Like, don't you have to let the humidifier run? <laughs> That's what it is. It's a windowless basement. Just think about it, guys. Once upon a time, we had a fiscal surplus and the treasury was like, I got to save the taxpayers money. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy back some high interest rate debt, save on the interest rate expense. That's, that's, so, right. that's so sweet. But now it's like, oh, we have a trillion dollar deficit. What are we going to do? Let's print more. So it's just a totally different world. Well, no, but it's more than that, Joseph. They are admitting grudgingly that they made a terrible mistake with quantitative easing because they created this ghetto of low income low coupon securities, both treasuries and mortgage securities that no one wants. The cost of hedging these securities is two or three times higher than the on the run stuff that the treasury and the mortgage companies are issuing today. And so it's nice that we can fix it with treasuries. You buy the old stuff at a discount, you issue new. Okay. The problem with mortgage backs, so is are you going to impose two or three trillion dollars in prepayments on the Bank of Japan? No, they're going to be very <laughs> So it's harder to fix this. But I think what we've described here uh, for the viewers is that when you mess around with the markets and you move them 300 basis points, and now the Fed is letting them go back, right, to fight inflation, you have a problem structurally in the market. And it's going to be here for a long time. These old mortgage securities won't prepay for 15 years. I mean, Powell will be retired and in a nursing home <laughs> by the time those Ginnie Mae twos finally disappear on the Fed's balance sheet. Just, just to give a little um, context for the audience, you know, in 2008, the real stress was credit risk, extremely uncreditworthy borrowers getting capital and then those yes, things being put in, in labyrinthine uh, financial structures. This time it's all about not credit risk, but liquidity risk and primarily interest rate risk. So Chris, when you said those yeah. Ginnie Mae ghettos of a two coupon, you're talking about mortgage-backed securities that were guaranteed by the U.S. government, quasi-guaranteed or fully guaranteed. Ginny May, they're fully guaranteed, I think. Um, and they have a coupon, meaning they yield 2%. And those were issued in, let's say, April or May of 2020, when the 10-year was at 50 basis points. So a two-year percent was a really good deal. And those securities were flying back and forth all across from L.A. to New York, to L.A. to New York, to, you know, to, to Europe. Uh, everyone was trading them all the time. But now that the you know, 10-year treasury rate is, you know, the two-year treasury rate is, is two, is, excuse me, 3.2%. No one wants a 2% yep. coupon. So they're uh, lower coupons that are, as you point out, extremely hard, much more difficult to hedge the interest rate change, especially when the two-year is bouncing around 20 basis points a day, trading like a meme stock. And also all the liquidity is in the five, six, seven coupons, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, if you think of it now, right now in Fannie Mae, the mortgage security that's closest to par is a four and a half. Mm -hmm. That means that the, the loans inside that security are typically going to have five and a half to 6% coupons. Okay. A reasonable rate. But those threes that we minted a couple of years ago that are inside of Ginnie Mae 2 are going to be around for a long time. In fact, a funny thing, realtors are starting to rediscover the concept of uh, assumability, which is they sell a house for somebody that has a, you know, a 3% loan from the FHA, and the new buyer of the house can assume the old mortgage. Hmm. That's good. So those mortgages may never prepay. Why should they? Right. They're valuable. My Dutch wife wanted to pay off our 3% last year. I was like, no, nah, we're keeping that loan forever. We're going to frame it. Yeah. I want a, a copy of the certificate to put on the wall. Because you know, we may not see a 3% coupon on a Fannie Jumbo loan like that for a long time. Right, if you, if you borrow at 3% and then rates go from 3% to 6%, you'd never yeah, refinance at 6% like unless you, you had some life event. So prepayments crash, and as a result, the duration of the mortgage-backed securities extends. Oh, yeah. I mean, Joe was talking about the federal home loan banks today. Uh, they're actually up in the 3.5% range yield-wise on their paper right now. So they're paying 35 but they're not making any money. They're underutilized. In fact, I'm hoping that Sandra Thompson, at the regulator for Fannie and Freddie, reopens the gates for the rest of the family so that they can come in and borrow from the home loan banks before they go out of business. This is going to be a tough oh, year, guys. It's changing. It's, I've actually just looked into this. Powell, uh, the home loan yeah. banks, they're, they're suddenly, there seems to be more loan demand. They suddenly expanded their, their loan borrowing oh, yeah. by like $200 billion the past three months. So it seems like there's more demand for home loan advances these days. Well, the days. banks are backing away. This is something we haven't talked about. 
while the Fed is doing all the neat things we've been talking about, they're raising capital on the top 50 banks. So Jamie Dimon and all of these other guys who've been providing finance to fintechs and mortgage companies, they're backing away. Isn't that great? Yeah. Chris, is that the Just counter- imagine where we're going to be is, in December. Is, it, is that the counter-cyclical buffer or is it something else? Yes, it's the counter-cyclical buffer. And why are the prudential regulators so worried? Because they look at the volatility that the Fed has injected into the markets by moving them around 300 basis points up and down. That's the problem. You know, most companies are small. You know, there's only a very few large financial institutions in this country. You'd be surprised how small they get when you go down the list. They can't manage volatility the same way Jamie Dimon can. Jamie Dimon's running a small country. He can stop <laughs> doing business with people outside of J.P. Morgan, and he'd be just fine. I mean, seriously, half of the transfers every day that J.P. makes are internal. So, you know, he has no problems. He's just going to fold his arms and go home. That's bad for the U.S. economy. And that's unfortunately what the, 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 the bank regulators down the hall from Powell are doing right now. And you know what? They never talk. I actually confirmed this the other day. They never talk. Hmm. So the head of soup and reg at the Fed never talks to Jay Powell about countercyclical buffers. I think that's a mistake. What do you think, Bill? <laughs> Obviously. You know, they, they, they have a new person, vice chair of supervision, so maybe that'll help because I think that position just got Bo filled. Bar? Yeah. No. You don't think? Go, go look at Treasury. Go look at the HAMP program at Treasury when Barr was there. It only started to work after he left. I might write a little article about that at some point. Just for context for the audience, the U.S. has about like 4,000 some commercial banks, but it's super concentrated. I think the top four GSIPs have like 40% or more of the yeah. entire banking sector's assets. So it's, it's, it's like JPM and then uh, let's say yeah. B of A and Citibank, Wells yeah, Fargo. The top four is about $10 trillion. Yeah. So it's about half about the total half. assets. So, you know, Jamie's three, Bank of America is almost three, Citi's two, and Wells is under two now. So and throw in U.S. Bank and you're there. Super, super concentrated. This or Schwab. Did you know Charles Schwab is the seventh largest bank in the United States now? I didn't know that, Chris. Uh, they have three times the core deposits of Goldman Sachs. So I'm telling you, David Solomon wishes, wishes he could buy that little bank. It's a, it's a money machine. They collect advisors. That's what they do. So, so Chris, tell us, I know in July, the Federal Reserve uh, exercised a stress test against the, all the large huge banks, GSIBs, and they said, okay, what happens if real estate declines by 40%? What happens if high yield bond spreads explode higher? What happens if the unemployment rate ticks up? And I think, based on the headline, I think they all the banks passed, but the Fed imposed a, uh, a higher ratio on them, so they have to have more, hold more capital. And is that is that why they're getting on the market? Can you just, yeah, explain, explain to me and explain to viewers what, what exactly happened there? Yeah, your viewers, if you have a moment, should go back and read the transcript of the J.P. Morgan earnings call for the second quarter because Jamie Dimon went off. He was very unhappy. He, I actually wrote a column at National Mortgage News just about Jamie because he said, look, you tell me I'm going to lose $40 billion in a, a stress scenario, and most of that was coming from mortgage. No, Jamie has the, the most pristine jumbo mortgage book in the industry. His loss given default has been negative for years. What that means is he can't lose money even if a loan defaults because they're such high quality and they sell the home. That's what's been happening for the last few years for all banks. So the whole group, I think, is, is now being forced to raise capital because the regulators look back. And when they look back, they see 2010, 2012, which were bad years. And banks not only took losses on private securities, but they had huge costs, fines, settlements. Yeah. It was extraordinary. So they look at the Fed, they look at quantitative easing, COVID, everything else, and they say, uh-oh, we could have another problem. And that's why they came up with these big numbers, Jack. I think they're wrong. I think the surrogates they use in their model are outsized. You're never going to see those kind of losses in a market, which is 99% government-guaranteed securities today. The, the private label market is a rounding error in today's market. So I think that's why it's different. They're worried really, though, not about credit risk. You said this before, Jack. They're worried about market risk. That's, at the end of the day, what they're worried about. 
If they're worried about market risk, they should call Jay Powell and tell him to stop. <laughs> tell him to buy more mortgages. <laughs> and Joseph, can you explain to me, like I'm a, a you know a young child or, or a golden retriever, what are the ratios that are relevant that the Federal Reserve imposes on the banking sector? I know there's a supplementary uh, leverage ratio. I know there's a core equity tier ratio. And in what way, maybe we can move on to you, Chris, uh, after, after Joseph, does that affect banks' lending activity? You know, are they withdrawing from the CLO market? I saw Wells Fargo withdrawing a little bit from the mortgage-backed security market because superficially, <laughs> a little. you know, I look at credit card oh, yeah. lending and that is spiking, which is, you kind of expect that late cycle. But uh, Joseph, can you just expen- explain the ratios? And then Chris, I want to get your uh, view on how that's impacting banks' actual activity. Yeah, so I think the big ratios are the leverage ratio and the capital ratio, and there's a lot of different ways to calculate that in ratios that are similar to them. Uh, on a high level, you have the leverage ratio, which kind of limits the size of a bank relative to its capital. So let's say you have oh, five, $5 in capital, then maybe you can only have $100 in your balance sheet size. And the other way to look at this is the capital ratio, which is similar except that it's a risk-weighted asset ratio. So, for example, in the leverage ratio, they treat an asset uh, reserves or a treasury or a corporate loan the same. So that all counts the same under the leverage ratio. But when you go to the capital ratio, there's a risk-weighted asset segment where, uh, where it's something, let's say, a corporate loan would have higher risk, a quarter higher risk weighting, where and a treasury would have no risk weighting. So overall, you can think of it as a constraining the size and the composition of a bank's balance sheet. And when the, when the government tweaks the capital requirements, like Chris mentioned, essentially that's trying to tamp down on bank lending, bank credit creation. Uh, it's a way to maybe make the banking sector safer or maybe to slow down the economy a little bit because it's perceived that we have uh, maybe too much credit creation driving up inflation. Yeah, and this regulation is so important, right? Like yeah, I think Basel II in the early 2000s was extraordinarily lenient on uh, complicated collateralized debt obligation structures that, you know, as long as they were rated AAA, they were rated AAA. So banks could hold a lot more against them. Now, in the wake of the great financial crisis, uh, the regulations are much more stringent under Basel III. And that's why a lot of bank, big banks uh, opt to hold tons of treasuries. It's not because they think, you know, deflation is coming or they, they're not necessarily taking a macroeconomic view. That's just the way regulations are. Likewise, I think in 2020, early 2021, uh, the supplementary leverage ratio was raised so banks could hold a lot more or they could d- deduct uh, treasuries uh, fr- from that. Um, but Chris, how is this impacting uh, bank, banks' actual activity? Are they withdrawing from markets? Are they not getting as involved? Which are the What's the sort of eye of the storm? What asset class is are banks withdrawing from the fastest? Well, Joe explained the, the uh, balance sheet side very well. Think of your typical bank like J.P. Morgan, you know, City, some of the others. They, they turn over their balance sheet every three to four years. So they have a pretty short weighted average maturity. That's the way we call it. Bank America is different. They keep everything. They have a weighted average maturity of like 15 years. You love so Bank of America, by the way. Your favorite. Oh, I do. The Bank of Brian. I use them. They're, they're my bank. I love Brian. But uh, don't buy the stock. <laughs> Um, so what's going on here is that the Fed is essentially forcing Jamie Dimon to turn down the flow of new assets into the bank. That in turn lets the bank shrink. Okay. So what he is forcing down that Joe explained very nicely is risk weighted assets. That's the number he focused on in the conference call and whether it's a commercial loan or a jumbo mortgage or a warehouse line to an auto lender or a mortgage lender, all of those have a weight in terms of Basel and capital. And so what they're gonna do is they're gonna push them down. Why is Wells Fargo getting out of the correspondent mortgage business? They used to have a third market share. Well, they're getting smaller. They're in the penalty box. They're gonna go down to like, you know, trillion and a half dollars in the next couple of quarters. It's gonna shock investors, by the way. They're not gonna believe it. Uh, And so, you know, when you tell the rah-rah crowd on the buy side, oh, banks are getting smaller, income is falling, they don't know what to do with that. So I think this this effort by the Fed to build capital on the bank side, it's going to have negative consequences for the economy. And by the way, investors are not going to like it. They want to buy these stocks. If you watch the market, they were up dramatically in the last 30 days, 20, 30%, some of these names. They're going to go back down now. But aren't banks making more money because 
interest rates are higher? Not yet. No, their funding costs are still low. Yes. The, the rate on loans is starting to rise, but funding costs are rising faster than the yield on the loan book. Really? And this is something Joseph knows a ton about because he you know, worked uh, in the money markets. And their costs aren't going down. Their costs, if anything, are inching up a little bit. So think about that example I gave you before, JP, you know, city three or less, uh, gross on the loan. A third of that is for, you know, administrative costs and everything else. And then called 30 basis points of funding costs. What's left? You're working for less than a point and you've got to put credit loss provisions aside too. Chris, aren't, my, 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 perhaps my numbers are out of date. Both of you know so much more about this than I do, but aren't, isn't the transmission mechanism from the Federal Reserve to deposit rates quite weak? In other words, if I deposit money at, the, at my bank now, I don't know exactly what I'm getting. I'm getting 50, 60, 70 basis points, but a bank could buy a treasury and earn 3%. So, you know, we could form a, a financial bank, we could form a, a banking company, you know, Waylon, Wang, and Farley, and we just get podcast people who listen to this podcast to give us money at 50 basis points, and then we buy treasuries, and then we go home. We deposit it at the well, Fed. for now, for now, yes. But, but believe me, those funding costs are going to catch up by next year. You know, the Fed took uh, 35 basis points out of earning assets for all banks in the United States with quantitative easing. Will we get it back? No, probably not. There's just too many factors holding it down. Uh, but I think that you will see banks get a lot smaller as the Fed drops reserves. It's dollar for dollar. Uh, and ironically, even though they're going to keep short term interest rates higher, I think the medium and long term rates are going to go down because <laughs> people want the paper. You know, there's a demand for risk free assets all over the world and it's not going to they want us to borrow more money and we can't. That's what it comes down to. Hey, hey Chris, I, I see that the bank credit banks in their earnings call, they, they seem to suggest that there's growing loan growth demand. And when I see in the aggregate data as well, it seems like credit creation, credit growth is, is pretty strong. Do you, do you think that's sustainable yes. or is that just because there's more inflation or do you think there's just yeah. rates are still too low or, or what's, what's kind of behind that? Well, it was muted for so long. Now that the bond market's been a little volatile, borrowers are going to go back to the banks. That's just the basics. Right now on our repo book, we're not competitive with the banks. The banks are 50 basis points inside us because the market has gone up. The bank's funding costs haven't gone up. So, I mean, yes, you're seeing growth in new loan originations. But remember, that book is running off 15, 20% a year. So in order to keep your balance sheet stable, you've got to make up for your runoff and then make new loans to get growth. So, for example, home equity lines, you're starting to see banks really focus on that product again because it's a, it's a higher interest rate, rising interest rate kind of product, right? But in order to catch up with the runoff, these are normally seven-year loans. Well, structurally, there's 10, 15% runoff in that book every year. The loans are getting paid off. They'll refi them or do something. So my point is, is that in this world we have with banks and also non-bank companies, REITs, doesn't matter what it is, they always have to keep up with the runoff on their book because those loans are maturing Sometimes they get prepaid ahead of time. So if you're the treasurer, you see the money coming in, you've got to go out and redeploy it. And that's the challenge, Jack, that you're alluding to. Sure, there's growth. Of course there's growth. But in order to get ahead of the redemptions, we've got to be double-digit growth. Joseph, I want to return to the treasury buyback that was proposed in, in the minutes that came out earlier this month. Why Can you, can you go through why buying back coupon securities, duration securities, longer term, longer out in the yield curve, but tenor, maturity, whatever you want to call it, and then funding that by issuing shorter term bills uh, you know, that don't have a coupon. And specifically, why is the fact that they don't have a coupon so, so significant? And how does that tie into the you know, trillions of dollars that are locked up in the RRP? And then also, you know, what about this whole humidifier, dehumidifier thing? Yeah. So, um, it's bills are special because they're short dated, so they're they're with they mature within a year, and they can be purchased by money market funds. And right now, as we discussed earlier, money market funds have a whole bunch of money and nowhere to put it, so they're just depositing it in the RRP. So if you issue bills, then 
what will happen is that the money market funds will just buy bills instead of the RRP. You basically have a whole bunch of cash sitting in the money market funds with nowhere to go. So if the treasury were to issue bills, that money will easily be lapped up. So it's not going to be very disruptive to the market. But also, it's, it's for Treasury's perspective, too. The market is more stable if they can balance out the duration of the securities and not have a lot of low-coupon stuff there, which, frankly, is cheap, but nobody wants it. Because owning a two right now, a Ginny Mae two, is an excuse to lose money. You're going to spend more money hedging that security than you're going to earn on the coupon. So... So why do we want to do this? So yeah, so so like you mentioned, because it, it's not attractive, the the low coupon stuff. It's the one way to get rid of it out of the market, so that it's not being volatile and affecting liquidity. Like you, you have these off the run coupons that you know maybe people don't really want. Uh, you could just have the treasury buy it, buy it and take it off the market. So I actually yeah. think this is really good for a couple reasons. So one way, one thing is that when the Fed, the Treasury is doing this. They're shifting money out of the reverse repo facility and basically putting it back into the banking sector because whoever sells that coupon treasury to the buyback, through the buyback program to Treasury, it's going to have a bank account somewhere. And so money gets siphoned from the RRP into the Treasury general account and then it gets sent into the commercial banking system. So that's one way that's, that's good. The second way, and it helps the Fed too. Yes, uh, so absolutely, it helps, it helps QT, manage, right? But, so, what right now yeah. what we're seeing QT, it's only draining the banking sector. So that actually puts a limit to how QT can proceed if all the money is coming out of the banking sector, because sooner or later the Fed will think that you know we've just drained too much in the banking sector. All the money in the RP is untouched. You know, we're in a, we're in a bind because we can't really control that, but the Treasury can help with that. Um, the, the second thing is that I actually think this buyback program it allows the Fed to be a lot tighter than the market expects. Because one of the things that might happen if the Fed tightens a lot is that you have this accident somewhere in the capital markets. It could be in the treasury markets like it was in the past. Um, when that happens, well, the Fed is going to be tempted or maybe forced to go back and do QE or cut rates and something like that. But, you know, we could have this market accident when inflation is still 5 6 7%. So, you know, that's, that, that puts the Fed in an awkward position. But if you have the Treasury there ready to fix this market mechanism, market failure, uh, just by this mechanical failure of not enough liquidity causing some kind of accident, then you can keep the Fed... Uh, the Fed can keep tightening, maintaining a pretty restrictive monetary policy. So it kind of separates the financial market accidents from the stance of monetary policy. Um, so I think that it's actually a pretty good idea for them to do this. Just at least have it in the back pocket in case something happens. But that's just the treasury side of QT. The more interesting side that people are talking about right now is the mortgage side. And that's that's the place where Chris has, has been discussing it. We should hear more about because, well, one is that there's some chatter about how the Fed might have to sell a little bit of mortgages, even though they don't talk about it as much. And two, if they don't sell it, how are they ever going to get all those mortgages off their balance sheet? I mean, they, like Chris mentioned, if you can just assume a mortgage, they're never, they're just, they're, they're risk going to stay there for, for a long, long, long time, right? Because yep. they're not going to prepay. Yeah, and it's so unfortunate because you're taking income out of the market that should have been left. This whole notion that, you know, forcing down rates and going back to your comment, Joseph, about the trans, you know, the transmission mechanism, it's been broken for a long time. So they injected a lot of speculative juice and a lot of short term activity pulling tomorrow's mortgages into today. But tomorrow's going to be light. We're, we're going to be at half a trillion a quarter this year in the mortgage market, which is striking. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't. If you read the Fed of New York projections for the portfolio that they published last month, it says no realized losses. <laughs> I, I, I take that as a hint. I think they're going to keep it unless they get creative and start swapping that paper with other central banks. You could do that for treasuries, give them a concessional price on the mortgages. Because, you know, there are investors who will hold that paper because it's sovereign risk, right? But they got to be investors that are not market facing and don't have to worry about a, a quarterly mark to market on their book. Just to explain, if, if you if the Fed owns a mortgage backed security with a duration, let's say, of three years, 12, 12, and then the duration <laughs> extends to 10 years or 12 years, as you say, Chris, 
the market value of that, if, if rates are rising, will go down. And if the Fed sells that, oh, they yeah. would realize a loss as a commercial bank would. But if they hold it to maturity because it's guaranteed by the U.S. government or quasi-guaranteed in the case of Fannie yeah. Mae, it's quote unquote impossible. Folks listening to the podcast, I'm, I did air quotes, impossible for them to lose money if they hold it to maturity. So the Federal Reserve will only realize losses if they sell. Yes, that, that's correct. But uh, let me say this. In the old days, when I worked at the Fed in New York, we had more or less of a free hand. You know, the committee would give us instructions and tell us to go do it. And we would do it quietly. Now everything has gotten to be very scripted and very media focused. So if they were to sell, that becomes a big event. I think what they ought to do is opportunistically manage the book. If rates are falling, they should sell into it. If they're rising, they should stop and look for other ways to diversify the portfolio. They could carve it up in the CMOs and have a Fannie Mae sell uh, structured securities with the, the mortgage bonds inside uh, and then keep the long piece for when rates fall and they would earn back some of the loss. But remember, the Fed doesn't care about losing money. They, they are here for the dual mandate. And I think that unfortunately, they don't always fully assess and, and I think consider how much of an impact they have on the market, even when they are indifferent to loss, because someone's losing money. Maybe they're not losing money, but someone is. And that, that's a terrible cost that they're imposing on private companies right now. So Chris, you mentioned a really interesting idea. So one way that the Fed could sell their mortgages would be actually to wrap them into some kind of CMO. So like a securitized yes. product. And that way, yes. uh, that way, maybe investors will be more interested in because when you have a securitized product, you can tranche the cash flows so that people maybe yeah. will be less exposed to. And this um, is stuff you would put away, Joseph. This would be held to maturity. The short stuff would go to a, a you know that audience, an investment grade investor, even a money market fund. The medium duration paper would go inside an insurance company. You know, held to maturity. Goodbye. And then the long stuff, which is very volatile. I think the Fed ought to keep. Why not? They've already taken the loss when they sell the securities. And over time, they could recoup a little bit. And that's the kind of risk, frankly, that the Fed or a central bank can hold and not worry about. You know, so, Very volatile piece of paper, by the way. It's the tailpiece of a mortgage-backed security. So it's totally correlated to interest rates. If you were at the Fed, would you counsel them to sell mortgages at all? Or just, just let it, you know, just let whatever we're rolling off just run in the background. I don't want them to disturb the market any more than it's already been disturbed. And I mean, the irony of Ginnie Mae and the Federal Housing Finance Agency putting out new capital requirements today when half of the industry is on the verge of insolvency is rather bitter, I must say, as somebody who works with mortgage companies every day. So I don't want them to disturb the market any more than they have already. But you know what, Joe, if rates rally, the desk in New York should have standing instructions to sell. Take advantage of it. Little bets, fives and tens. Just dribble it back into the market. There's nothing wrong with that. But you're not going to get a bid for 20 or $30 billion in Ginny May 2s. That's not going to happen. <laughs> if, if they were to sell, let's say, $10 billion a month, which is the maximum they probably could sell, nothing. do yet. you think they would, act, would it actually affect mortgage rates? Would it make mortgage rates go a little bit higher, actually tighten financial conditions? I'll, I'll say no, because there's still so much demand for that collateral. And the swing in the visible supply has been so extraordinary. You know, a couple of years ago, we were doing trillions a year. This year, we'll be lucky to do two. Okay? We were doing trillions of dollars a quarter a year ago. So, you know, there's a lack of collateral out there, and the Fed can use that to their advantage if they're smart and if they have, a, a I think, a greater sensitivity to the market and to short-term moves in the market. They could dribble this stuff out over time without bothering anybody. It just depends how you do it. And frankly, Joe, you could use the dealers too. They would work with you. So basically, because we have housing prices declining, there's not a new purchase origination. And because mortgage rates are still high, there's not a lot of refinancing. Well, that's all there is. So there's basically- It'll be 80% purchase this year. Not a lot you know. of new supply, mortgage supply. So that means the existing stock as long as someone needs to purchase mortgage-backed securities, that they, they don't have a lot of choice. I don't see how you prevent the 10-year treasury from going down in yield. I really don't. In which and case, the, the, the mortgage yields will curve. go down as well, right? Because they're, they're so correlated. Yes. 
Yes, but remember, there's a competitive, irrational aspect to mortgages. We still have a third to a half too much capacity right now. We've got to get these people out of the market because they are underpricing mortgages in an attempt to survive. And, you know, we're sympathetic to survival, right? But, you know, until we get supply and demand in that market back in the balance after what the Fed did to increase capacity, uh, it's going to be hard to price mortgages in a rational way. Once upon a time, when the private sector held a lot of mortgages, they would hedge their mortgage interest rates, right? There's lots of convexity hedging. So uh, what, what that means usually was, you know, let's say they would sell a lot of treasuries when uh, rates when rates were going higher and then buy treasuries when the rates were going lower. So it, it exacerbated the volatility of, of the rates market. Do, Chris, do you think that if the Fed basically gradually getting out of this uh, MBS thing, uh, market, even by a little, would, would that make a return of convexity hedging being more of a force in, in the rates market? I think it would help normalize it, whether or not, you know, when, when people hedge mortgages, they typically sell a combination of treasuries and forward uh, what we call TBA contracts, which is a, a 30 or a 60 day contract to deliver a pool of mortgages, a new mortgage-backed security, right? So when the Fed came in, they distorted this market tremendously. And you had a period when rates were only falling, right? So there was a temptation on the part of a lot of people not to hedge you or not to hedge as much. So you would be short on your hedge, but your long production, right? You were making mortgages. Now, however, as we normalize, I think people are going to have to be more honest in how they hedge. And that can increase the cost depending on what they're hedging, right? So, you know, to me, that's the uh, the issue. But this goes back to Jack's earlier question to you, which is, you know, what is the Fed worried about? They're worried about volatility. You know, the reason they're not going 75 in September is I think Waller and a couple of the other governors, that at least two I've spoken to, I've said, look, volatility is your biggest problem. Everybody's in a hurry. You know, why did we go to 75? It's because the equity uh, managers wanted to get done with this in two quarters. They're all thinking, well, the Fed can declare success now and then we can drop rates. <laughs> because the last thing the equity crowd wants is to have a year of down quarters. And that's what they're looking at. So I think you know the Fed is trying to manage a process where they are still flying blind on the portfolio on the one hand and not you know, do too much because what if the inflation numbers start falling by the end of the year, defying everybody's expectations and they will have done too much, right? So, you know, they, they created this problem. The problem is capital V volatility either way. Hmm. And how you get out of that? See, I think the Fed and Powell would like to have a, a year when they did nothing. Maybe just let the balance sheet run off next year. Yeah, and don't change Fed funds at all. That would be wonderful for the interest rate market. Yes, well, settle the spreads. Yeah, Chris, uh, it's often been pointed out that the average duration of months after the Federal Reserve stops hiking to when it starts cutting again is something like seven or eight months. So it's it's right. Fed is constantly changing its mind, and it, yeah, it would be nice to have interest rates stable. stable well, that's the problem, though. You see, they allowed themselves to be pushed around politically. Yeah. Let's be fair. And now they're in a position where they have to try and regain their credibility. So, you know, it, 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 there's no winning in Washington. Let, let's be plain. I think these guys would be better off if they just stayed out of Jackson Hole. I remember that Powell always made a point to try to not be political. When, when I, at his Humphrey Hawkins hearings, he would also always be like, I'm trying to stay in my lane. You know, I'm not going to comment on that. But then during, during the, I think during the, the time when they were passing the huge stimulus bill, he was basically egging everyone on, right? So he was basically being part of the, uh, not staying in his lane and just basically giving advice. And I know. You know, we ended up where we are today. So uh, for him, but he, he, he forgot the old lesson, which is that you've got to be able to put the fear of God in members of Congress. And when Paul Volcker, Alan Greenspan went up there, they would talk about fiscal issues and they would put them on the spot. This crowd won't do that. You know, they don't have enough money in the bank to behave that way. Mm -hmm. That that's the problem. You know, do you think Carter Glass would have let Elizabeth Warren push him around on Capitol Hill? No, <laughs> that woman wouldn't. You know, give him the time of day. 
That, that, that's the difference. We, we have a bunch of sycophants and functionaries instead of leaders in our major government agencies, and especially the Fed. You have to have people of character who have some money in their pocket who don't care if they have to resign. That's the difference. Chris, how high do you think the Fed funds rate is going to be? Uh, currently in December, the market is projecting it gets to, uh, let's see, about you know 360 basis points. Do you think it gets there, lower, higher? And then Joseph, your view. I, I think we'll get over four and then hopefully stay there for a while. Joseph? I think, I think we're going to get over four as well. Uh, you know, the, here's the thing about the Fed. I think it's very important to understand how the Fed thinks about the world because the Fed has a lot of power. So if we understand that they think that three and a half fours will be restrictive, then that's how that's that that's really important when you we go about making investment decisions. But how the Fed actually thinks about the world isn't actually necessarily how the world actually works. So you have this idea of something called the neutral rate, where if you get there or above, you know that's that's kind of how you get there and stay above, inflation will come down. But I, you know, I have no idea if this neutral rate concept is real or even if they know where it is. So they could very well be very wrong and get the neutral rate completely wrong. And so we we could be in a place where we were at four percent and we can see inflation stay. Uh, pretty elevated. Well, we, we shouldn't let them make up their own terminology, Joseph. They should have to use real world terminology and say this is either inflationary or deflationary. But don't come up with new ideas with little stars next to them and then tell me you're not sure what it is. These are the imaginings of economists. You know, this is the basic problem. If we were dealing with physicists with slide rules in their hands, we'd have a way of benchmarking their performance. But with economists, we have no idea. I agree completely. Yeah. And let's say they get everything wrong like they did. There's no consequence. All the people who made terrible yeah. decisions, they're still there. Well, who knows? Maybe they got promotions. And they're still there contributing their bad judgment. So we are probably going to screw up again because the same people are there making the same mistakes. I think we should license them, and they should have to put out regular predictions, and we should score them. How about that? Uh, I mean, we've done that. We know that the Fed is terrible at <laughs> forecasting. It doesn't stop us for some reason. <laughs> All right. Boys, I got to jump. I got to call in a few minutes. All right. Chris, nice was... to see you, man. I'll talk to you again Thanks soon. Thanks so much, yes. Chris. I, I appreciate it. All right. So, Joseph, I, I really want to pick your brain on this because so often we see on Twitter people saying, hey, the Federal Reserve is supposed to have reduced its balance sheet starting months ago, but I'm looking at this chart here and it's barely budged. In fact, there have been weeks where the Federal Reserve added to its balance sheet. So, Joseph, what's going on? Is it all a lie? No, it's not a lie. The Fed is doing exactly what they're, they've said they will do. And what you're seeing right now is just the difference in how accounting works. And um, so I'll explain this from Treasuries and, and from mortgage-backed securities. So if you look at a holdings of Fred Treasuries, you notice that after QE, it actually gradually grew a little bit. Now, that's not the Fed continuing to buy Treasuries. What that is, is tips, which are inflation-protected securities appreciating. So the Fed holds a few hundred billion dollars in tips. And tips, um, every month they are adjusted for inflation. So let's say you have $100 in tips and inflation is 12%, then in a month, maybe you end up with $101 in face value of tips. So the Fed holds a lot of tips. Inflation has been high. So every month, you can see the tips portfolio growing a little bit. Now, that creates the illusion that the Fed is buying more treasuries because their treasury holdings are, are increasing, but it's just tips increasing because of inflation. That's one part. The second part is the MBS portfolio. It looks like it's not falling as much as it should. In fact, sometimes it looks like it's increasing. Now, that just has to do with how the Fed conducts settlements. So when the Fed buys mortgage-backed securities, um, it can take delivery of them uh, within uh, three months. So some of the mortgage-backed securities you're looking at right now were actually purchased three months ago. Now, you may wonder, why was the Fed buying mortgages in May? Was in May already the end of QE? Well, in May, so every month the Fed receives um, repayments from mortgages. But when it's not shrinking its balance sheet, it takes those, it takes the principal it receives and it reinvests them in mortgages. So let's say it gets $100 repaid 
uh, in May, then it takes that $100 and it uses it to purchase more mortgage-backed securities. It's just reinvesting it and maintaining the size of its balance sheet. So that's why in May, it was still purchasing mortgage-backed securities. So some of the things that they bought in the past three months are still settling on its balance sheet. That's why sometimes, even though the Fed is shrinking its MBS portfolio, you see increases. Now, over time, the Fed will the Fed will no longer have enough to reinvest, so you won't see that anymore. But if you take that into account, you see that the mortgage securities portfolio is actually dropping, as they've noted. Okay, thank you. So it's just a delay between when they actually buy it and when it shows up on the balance sheet. Exactly, Jack. That's exactly why. And there's no way the Federal Reserve could increase the, the you know, when they actually buy it, they couldn't market. You know, why, why is it they have to wait until they receive it? Yeah, so the, the Fed is actually really sensitive to affecting mar- the market. So the Fed is the biggest mortgage investor in the mortgage-backed uh, security space, and it doesn't want to uh, affect market functioning. So if it feels like there's some scarcity in the mortgage market, it'll delay taking delivery and roll it over to the next month. So it's a judgment call that the Fed makes. Joseph, thanks so much for being generous with your time. People can find your insights on fedguide.com, your book, I really recommend it, Central Banking 101, and your Twitter handle is at fedguy12. Joseph, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jack. It's a pleasure being here. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.